गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय तद्भक्ताय नमो नम सो प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू वेलकम अगेन वी आर कंटिन्यू विद आवर सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स ऑन श्री राधिकल पर्सनलिज्म श्रीमाति राधिकल पर्सनलिज्म as we mentioned and today we are on lecture 16 um inside the main series we have this sub series on sri guru tattva and today tuesday we will be seeing sixth part sixth part of guru tattva penultimate part where we will be talking about codependency versus healthy surrender but as usual we will begin by doing some recap of what we saw last Tuesday fifth class on guru tattva where we were touching on being rejected by one's guru before that class we talked about abandoning one's guru and now we're going to the other side of the coin so to say so we began the class by addressing the different reasons for the disciple being disowned by the guru or better said analyzing if there were any actual reasons that shastra could consider for this accepted disciple to be worthy if you will to be rejected by the guru and interestingly we found that there is not such a possibility is not entertained by shastra while well, we find statements about guru being rejected by a disciple if there is considerable misbehavior we don't find the same type of statements in connection to a disciple being rejected by the guru on the contrary the emphasis is on the merciful disposition ideal disposition of the guru uh, and also we found some statements in shastra which seem to indicate that the disciple can be rejected at one point but actually properly analyzing them uh, or without too much detail it's very clear that those statements speak about the rejection of prospective candidates and not of accepted disciples mm-hmm. So on one side of course a guru can be abandoned if he or she uh, does not exhibit the qualities expected from a guru once accepted but interestingly we don't find the same criteria and the same idea in relation to a disciple and with this of course a point is that there is more responsibility in one sense in the relationship on the side of the guru is expected that the guru will be uh, more advanced like the relationship with the father of a child and if the child engages in some childish mistakes the father will be forgive and continue nourishing the child of course and we are we haven't said this to <clears throat> over justify misbehavior on the part of a disciple mm. but just to make clear the point of which are the which is the framework and the dynamics of this relationship we also refer to the example of ramachandra puri and madhavendra puri where it seems that madhavendra puri rejects ramachandra puri but by going through what chaitanya charitamrita says the main point is that he's been rebuked ramachandra puri is being rebuked by his guru and not so much disowned and rejected on a permanent absolute level we also spoke about levels of rejection you can reject someone for a moment temporarily but that's not necessarily the same as disowning and this was not only clear by expressions in the in the very chapter and comments of prabhupada where the main idea was rebuking not so much disowning but also mahaprabhu hmm? treating ramachandra puri when meeting him after being quote unquote rejected by madhavendra puri treating him as a disciple of madhavendra puri and showing respect to to him which with this confirming that 
he was not concerned that he was completely disowned and thus confirming what Shastra said that that possibility is not there. Also, we mentioned that in some cases, some disciples accepted disciples, maybe temporarily rejected or something like that. But for the guru to re reject you know, temporarily or take a distance of a disciple, also we mentioned the disciple has to be really evil person, evil-minded and extremely bad, ill-behaved. And even if that happens, such a disciple in time should abandon the practice altogether or continue to behave horribly, which will confirm that point. But even in those cases, we don't find that Shastra is uh, confirming that there is a moment in which the Guru will or can disown the disciple. The Guru may, of course, take some healthy distance or put that so-called terrible disciple or terrible so-called disciple, put that person in, <laughs> in some distance from the rest of the community. So it's not disturbing further, but the possibility of full disowning is, hasn't been considered. Also, we share some other misunderstandings in connection to being rejected by one's guru. And one is the classical uh, prejudice that, okay, if your guru rejected you, that means that you are necessarily wrong as a disciple because the guru is always right, which, of course, we already touched upon on other classes. This lends itself for abuse in different ways in which only always the disciple is the guilty party and inviting for a guilt trip, shame trip. Uh, but again, as we mentioned, if a guru is rejecting a disciple for the wrong reasons, uh, he is fit to be rejected for the right reasons, so to say, because he's showing that the guru, he's not having the proper mercy, the proper merciful disposition and capacity to contain and embrace and support any disciple. Mm -hmm. Some other misunderstanding sometimes is a disciple is rejected for the wrong reasons. So as we mentioned, for the wrong reason means just to be rejected is something not supported by Shastra. In some cases, say, oh, you have been rejected, you don't have a guru, you cannot give Harikata, or you are devoid of shelter, of connection. But again, if a guru has, a Vyasti guru has misrepresented three Samasti gurus, three guru department, when rejecting that person, that disciple has not actually been rejected by the Guru Tattva. But again, we may wonder in that case, then what's the situation of such a disciple who has been unjustly rejected by his Guru or who has abandoned his Guru with good reasons, as we talked in the previous class. We elaborated on that at the end of our previous class also. If we sincerely look for God, and He will take the role of Guru in our hearts, even if we don't have Guru, quote-unquote, externally, if we have had it, had it and we continue sincerely searching, the Guru principle will never leave us. And Krishna himself, the origin of Guru Tattva, Chaitya Guru, he will continually guiding the sincere aspirant and gradually take him to the external Guru, so to say the external manifestation of the Chaitya Guru principle. As we mentioned, God won't stop any sincere seeker, seeker <clears throat> for from finding the truth, and any sincere seeker won't allow himself or herself to be stopped by anyone or anything in his pursuit of truth either. Mm -hmm. So even if someone has to go through this uh, undesirable situation, but sometimes happening, of having to abandon one's guru, being abandoned by one's guru, but one remains sincere and properly situated, then the guru's external form may have changed in those cases. Mm -hmm. But remember, the guru is always one in principle. And it's always there if we are sincere. Sincerity is invincible. <clears throat> so some words of recap from what we saw last Tuesday. Uh, let's begin today with a brief introduction to today's title, 
sixth lecture again on Guru Tattva. <coughs> Sorry. Where we will be talking about codependency versus healthy surrender. So our last two classes, as, as I mentioned, were about abandoning one's guru or being rejected by one's guru. <clears throat> so in today's class and in the next one, the last two classes on Guru Tattva, not the last two classes on whole radical personalism, but on this section, Guru Tattva, we won't be talking about guru or disciple rejecting each other officially, externally, but in, about those situations where guru and disciple remain as such, externally in the relationship, but internally they remain rejecting each other in the sense of rejecting the very essence of their relationship. Whether the guru doing that, or the disciple doing that, or in some cases the two of them simultaneously. So today we'll be addressing this situation of uh, codependency versus healthy surrender, but to put that in context we'll begin by speaking about the ideal relationship between guru and disciple and how it should unfold and what's the specific responsibility of each of these parts of the relationship guru and disciple in relation to each other and some possible misconceptions as well in this regard especially today in connection again to the difference between healthy surrender and codependency which again may look the same to the untrained eye but actually they are exact opposites between each other so let's go to this first section where we'll be talking about <clears throat> the ideal relationship between guru and disciple before going to the not-so-ideal templates. So to put it briefly, the relationship between guru and disciple should be one of love, trust, affection, confidence, and mutual service to an ideal that eternally lies above the head of both. And the ideal is divine love. This is the goal to attain for both, for guru and for disciple. And even if some of the guru has attained it, still you can always attain it more and more. <laughs> so it always remains as the ideal to continue attaining. So both guru and disciple are serving the same ideal. Mm -hmm. So in, in one sense, we could say guru and disciple are disciples, both of them forever. Mm -hmm. The disciple is disciple and the guru is disciple. Not all, of course, because the two of them have their respective gurus. The guru has... The disciple has his guru, but the guru has his own guru or her own guru. But also both of them are disciples forever because, again, they are eternally servants of the same ideal. Servant and disciple are basically synonymous. Like I like to say, guru means to remain a disciple, but from a different seat. It's not that you, you are serving as a guru and now you are no longer a disciple or a servant. You are a servant you are serving as a guru. You remain a servant even more than ever, ideally. And it's not that you are you're no, no, no longer a disciple. You ideally become more disciple than ever. And you will find how your own guru, if you are a guru, is coming to engage you in seva through your different disciples. And so eventually you will see each of your disciples as your guru coming and committing you in service more and more deeply. So in that sense, both guru and disciple remain eternally servants and disciples. And of course, we could say, on the, on the other side, the best servant naturally will be guru. Whether he's initiating, she's initiating or not, but naturally become guru in the, in the sense of embodying what's <clears throat> characteristic of a guru. And that's why we don't have a Sisya Purnim, or, but we only have Guru Purnim, the day of the guru, but we don't have the day of a disciple, because ultimately <laughs> these two words become synonymous. 
as we have been mentioning, Guru is disciple, and the best disciple is Guru. So therefore, all the Sri Guru is teaching, instructing the disciple in, in the classical role and interaction. At the same time, the Guru remains a student forever, in the words of Siddhar Maharaj, to the point of learning from everyone. In many, in many times, in many occasions, in many occasions, the Guru would not learn from everyone, means learn even from his disciples. It's important to understand that has to happen in a natural way, not a forced way. We have the example of Vyasadeva himself. He was, he's the ideal guru, the prototype of the guru. He's teaching Shastra, that's kind of the main function of the guru. He's teaching Shastra to his disciples and sons, Sukadeva Goswami. He's teaching the Bhagavatam. But not only he's teaching the Bhagavan, the Bhagavatam to him, but then he's hearing the Bhagavatam, the same Bhagavatam. I mean, never the same, <laughs> new Bhagavatam, hearing from the lips of his disciple and son, Sukadeva Goswami. And Vyasadeva finds it difficult to contain himself while hearing, learning from his disciple. Not only Vyasadeva is hearing from Sukadeva, but Narad Muni, who is Vyasa's own guru, is hearing from Sukadeva. So Narad is hearing from the disciple of his disciple. So we see, which is, this is parampara. <laughs> it's not only I'm your guru, I cannot learn anything from you. you, I don't need you as a disciple, you need me only. It doesn't work like that. We see this is real parampara. Everyone is guru. And everyone is a disciple. <laughs> That's why we call it not only Guru Parampara, but Guru Sishya Parampara. Sishya means disciple. So it's not only Guru, the Sishya is there. And even we call it disciplic succession. In another word, disciplic has to do with disciple. So all of them are disciples. All of them remain learning from each other. And of course, needless to say, this Nisishya Twa, or discipleship, discipleness, <laughs> that the Guru is showing will inspire the disciples of that Guru to surrender more to him, to her. So it's not that if you are a Guru and you show your side as a disciple and learning as a student, you will lose the faith of your students, so to say. It's exactly the contrary. So in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, again, Vyasa, going, continuing with the Vyasa archetype, Vyasa Dev is a prototype of the Guru figure for us. Not only for us, but in the whole Hinduism. You see in the Hindu calendar, of course, also our Vaishnava calendar, this Guru Purnim is celebrated like the day of the Guru once a year. But actually Guru Purnim is the Vyasa Purnim, is the day of appearance of Vyasa Dev. So you see how much the two of them are put together and equated. Guru and Vyasa. Guru and Vyasa. So his Vyasa Dev is setting the precedence what's to be expected from a Guru, how to behave. So again, he's showing the ideal example of teaching Shastra. But also he's setting this clear present of how an ideal guru should behave in terms of remaining a disciple, remaining a student. In many ways, remaining open to change and even acknowledge his sore shortcomings. For example, that's a famous case. He's humble enough to acknowledge his own shortcomings and remaining further to further, open to further education and upgrade like he did when he ended compiling all the Vedic literatures and still feeling dissatisfied with his writing of all such a monumental work, and then the Srimad Bhatt and his ultimate editing, edited version, so to say, came in Samadhi. So he was open to acknowledge, he was vulnerable. So he's setting the presence, a guru can be that, or even should do that. And also, another example of how a guru is supposed to be, is Vyasadeva was willing, as we mentioned, to learn from his disciple, Sukadeva. Mm -hmm. And with this showing, 
the guru-disciple relationship is not one in which only the disciple needs the guru, learns from the guru, but where the guru also needs the disciple and learns from the disciple. And the guru needs the disciple in more than one way. Of course, to begin with, the guru needs a disciple because without disciple, you cannot be a guru. <laughs> you cannot officiate, serve in the capacity of guru if there's no disciples. There's no student, the teacher cannot, cannot teach, basically. So to begin with, in that sense, the guru needs the disciple or needs a disciple. <laughs> but in a deeper sense, even, that we are touching up on here, the guru needs the disciple to learn from him as we have mentioned, just like the disciple, of course, will need the guru to learn from him, in his own, each in his own ways. I'm not saying that the learning is exactly the same. It's happening in the same way, but there is a learning and there is a teaching and spirit. It's not the disciple is feeling, of course, I will instruct my guru. But that happens naturally if both power parts of the relationship are in the proper place. That's the arrangement. Mm -hmm. So both will learn from each other and both need each other, therefore. Therefore, the ideal guru-disciple, remember we are talking about the ideal guru-disciple relationship that we should aspire for. So the ideal guru-disciple relationship is not so much, a, as we have seen, a hierarchical, monarchical, or even pyramidal relationship. On top, the guru, and below, all the disciples, and only the disciples need the guru, only the disciples learn from the guru. It's not so much in that way, hierarchical, monarchical pyramidal, but it's more the, res the, res the result of a circular or even a spiral collaboration mm. where there's a flow where everyone is learning from everyone, mm. where the, sh the sharing, the nourishing is always mutual, mutual work, mutual joint collaboration, and never unidirectional, mm. not non-reciprocal. Mm. It's actually something that is flowing in every possible direction. Mm. As we already say, the highest sense an ideal situation, both guru and disciple will be guru and both will remain as disciples simultaneously. <laughs> Ultimately, these two words, guru, disciple, merge into one another and they become synonymous. Because the two of them are so exemplary in their behavior, they will be guru. But the two of them are so open to learn and grow, they will be disciple. Guru, sisya, parampara. Both are guru, both are sisya. So we already talked before in previous class about the ideal attributes of, of both guru and disciple, so I won't go here into the details of that, but just a brief recap so we can have that in mind because we will explain some things in that connection. So guru should have proper knowledge of Shastra, should have inner realization of that knowledge, and should exhibit that inner realization in the form of a controlled mind, senses, and a balanced humanity, to put it briefly. And a disciple should be have sincere spirit of inquiry, willing to inquire, open, open his heart, her heart to be filled with what Sri Guru has to offer, if everything is in the right place, and that we call surrender. Sincere inquiry and surrender to revelation. So, of course, we already analyzed some unfortunate circumstances when this is not the case, where some of these elements are missing, and, but still the ideal templates should be looked for. We should bear in mind what's the ideal way in which all the things should happen and we should look for that in the template, not only in relation to the guru, but also in relation to us as students. Remember, each one has to contribute with their own part. And in this connection, one consideration that we already shared, but it's important to emphasize once more, before accepting one another, 
remember, guru-disciple relationships is a, is a voluntary and deeply committed relationship, but voluntary. So Sanatana Goswami mentions in his Hari Bhakti Vilas a lot that the importance of guru and disciple living together for a year before accepting one another in their relationship, getting to know each other, coexisting together as partners. Remember, guru-disciple is a mutual collaboration, working together in the service of a common ideal. So they can know each other, they can develop a relationship, and they can get acquainted. For example, the disciples can get acquainted with both the absolute and relative sides of the guru, as we already talked in previous classes. And also, the, the, the guru has to become acquainted with the different sides of the disciples, so to say. So this experience of living, sharing together will keep the relationship realistic and not over-idealized from both sides. Not the disciple over-idealizing the guru in the distance, nor the guru over-idealizing the disciple in an unrealistic way. So this the ideal scenario, of course, if we cannot directly live with one's guru in this period, and that may be the case for most or for some, <clears throat> then there should be some, some arrangement to compensate for that, so to say, for or at least having another sadhu in our lives come in complementary that may fill that role as a representative of Sri Guru. Because again, when your Guru can be a top pure devotee, top most Uttam Mahabhagat with all devotional medals, so to say. But usually we need someone close to us with whom we can hold ourselves accountable and in a personalized way. Again, we have to keep it radically personal, personalist. So if we only think, oh, my Guru is a pure devotee and he always knows everything about me, so he will always tell me the perfect revelation without even knowing me, that may be too idealized. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and again, this doesn't mean that the Guru is not a pure devotee as he or she may be, or that we have, are in the wrong situation. It's just that we may need another person, another devotee, another sadhu in our lives who knows us in detail personally, in our daily dynamics, in complement to our relationship with, with Sri Guru. And it's, it, there's a place for that. That's my point. We should see how to complement, compensate all these things that are ideally, represent the ideal scenario. So once established hmm, the relationship, ideal relationship between Guru and disciple, what is that relationship? We just share some preliminary ideal scenarios till now. But once this relationship is established or formalized, whatever initiation is there, so what's the ideal scenario? In the famous words of Rupa Goswami, it's Bisrambhena Guru Seva. Which means to serve Sri Guru is more directed to the disciple, but as we already spoke, there's a reciprocal dealing here. So Guru Seva, render service to your Guru in the spirit of Bisrambha, which means confidence, intimacy, affection. This is a central line which emphasizes the mood between guru and disciple, or where the relationship should ideally evolve, in which direction. Hmm? Of course, be before that, Rupa Goswami speaks about Adho Guru Padasriya, Se Krishna Dikshadi Sekshanam, to take shelter in the guru. Hmm? But of course, before taking shelter in that person, and before initiation, there is already some experience in relation to that person that inspires surrender, inspires confidence, and we cannot just keep that. It's not a, remember, surrender is not a forced thing with a white flag. Mm. Then comes siksha, further dik, siksha, diksha, further siksha, like a natural consequence of that shelter that we have taken originally. Mm. And again, of this confidence that was there 
on some level to begin with. So after all this process of shelter, initiation, diction, siksha, Vishram Bena Guru Seva, the confidence continues to unfold and develop. Intimacy, the relationships continue to, to be unpacked, so to say. Again, Vishramba was there in one level to begin with, some intimacy, some confidence, some trust in that person. But gradually, as the whole relationship unfolds and develops, naturally that Vishramba will grow, will expand when in time, like in every relationship. It begins at some point, there is some initial trust, confidence, and gradually it starts to blossom into its ideal, ultimate potential. But that Vishramba is there from day one as a constant that just unfolds and folds and folds. In the two form interesting Vishramba means again, not only confidence, intimacy, but also friendship. So ideally the relationship should unfold into one of friendship with the Guru. And this friendship is not something that the disciple only has to allow himself to experience, of course, in a proper way. I'm not speaking about just deep, cheap familiarity, but proper ground, properly grounded friendship and confidence. But not only the disciple has to experience that, but the guru has to allow that to happen in their relationship also. So that's the ideal scenario. Not only the disciple is allowing himself, herself for that to happen, but the guru is also allowing that to happen putting himself in that situation and exposing himself to so, those degrees of intimacy. Hmm? So Bisramba means again confidence. In general, where well, you can translate it as confidence, but it's difficult to translate it with only one word. So it's a confidence that implies intimacy and a sense of friendship. All of them put together, Bisramba. Bisramba, interestingly, is also the Sarupal action or defining quality of Sakyarati. Hmm? Of the relation of the friendship relation between the devotee and Bhagavan in this case. Of course, the Bishramba with Krishna will take a particular relation uh, form, and the Bishramba with the Guru will take a different form, but there is still some connection between what the, these two this term implies in both relationships. Again, so there is some prospect for friendship with the Guru. Like the one one develops like a, a, a child. A son and a daughter develops with one's father or mother. Eventually, in the beginning, your father will be to say sometime first five years, father will allow the baby to do whatever he wants. Next five years, there will be more perimeter, parameter, context, rules. <laughs> so the baby doesn't become an anarchic monster. <laughs> but if all of that was in place, eventually there will be friendship. The relationship between father and son should evolve into one of friendship. Still, there is father and son relationship, but Friendship is there adding to the equation. So the same can happen with the guru and the disciple. So there is this prospect of Visramba, friendship on one level. Although again, guru-disciple relationship remains in another dimension simultaneously. Like the father still is father, the son is son, but also now they are friends. Mm -hmm. So of course we have to ask, question ourselves how much we are allowing for that to happen. How we are opening ourselves for that possibility in our connection with Sri Guru, or how to conduct our relationship, if that's not in place yet, how to conduct my relationship today, so that it reaches that converging point. As a disciple and as a Guru, how to allow that to happen? Both of them have to do their part. What place am I supposed to reach so that can happen and be appropriate? Again, not cheap familiarity. And how will it play out? All the things we should bear in mind and meditate happen and do the needful, of course. 
So, of course, there is still some what we may call systemic hierarchy with Sri Guru, as in every relationship. Again, he still is the Guru and we are still the disciples. Like with my mom, there may be some friendship, but still she's my mom. I mean, I cannot become my mom's mom. It's not possible. In that sense, there is still some systemic hierarchy, but there can be friendship. In another sense, we could say, although we may speak about hierarchy, in another sense, we can say that love and affection is the end of all hierarchies. Hmm? If I love you, you love me. So in that sense, it becomes like an equal exchange. If I become the servant of my guru, the guru will become the servant of the disciple in its own way. Each, way, each one in its own way, of course. But at least in this sense, we could say that ultimately there are, there's no hierarchy because the two of them are reciprocating on the basis of service. We already mentioned the guru is a servant of the disciple's strata, of the faith of the disciple. The guru is a servant and the disciple is a servant, should be, ideally. Hmm? Even that happens with Krishna himself. I mean, you, in relation to his devotees, you can see it, especially in Braj, Bhagavan is unaware of his godhood and the Brajavasis are unaware of Krishna's godhood. So they relate with, to him, with him and in, in, as equals in, the, in terms of intimacy. Mm? So if this happens with God, mm, we could ask the same, how much this same thing happens, this same pattern happens, at least in a certain way, between Guru and us. Because the Guru is the representative of Krishna. If that happens with Krishna, it may happen with Guru in one level, in terms of intimacy, again, and affection. I'm not comparing the two of them 100%. So again, there may still will be the hierarchy in the sense of each one playing the role in the relationship, but ideally it should evolve into one of friendship, trust, confidence, intimacy. Of course, unfortunately, in some cases, that's not very present uh, in how the guru relates to the disciple nowadays. Many times there is lots of fear, intimidation, anxiety. The guru is only authority figure, or father figure, but not a friend, uh, or ecclesiastical, omnipotent entity, <laughs> or whatever. No a disciple may be over-idealizing the guru to compensate the disciple's actual lack of faith. So many possible scenarios can be there, and we will try to address some of them today and in next class as well. So let's go to the next section after this uh, not-so-brief first part of on the ideal relationship, the ideal template between guru and disciple. Let's continue talking about the same thing from another perspective. Let's speak about vulnerability, a topic that we mentioned a few some time ago, and how the disciple's duty is to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And the guru's duty is to honor that vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So this is another way to frame the same discussion we have had till now. Mm -hmm. The relationship between guru and disciple has to happen in terms of proper exhibiting one's vulnerability and proper honoring and venerating that. Unempowerment, remember, we spoke about vulnerability, unempowerment. We, we had those classes at the beginning of this series. So if everything is in place, if both guru and disciple are sincere and doing their part, so to say, then the role of the disciple is to open his, her heart and surrender hmm? in a healthy way, in a voluntary way, in a beautiful way. And the role of the guru is to honor that open-heartedness, honor that vulnerability, and serve that vulnerability. That's another way of describing the role of the guru. He's a servant of the disciple's vulnerability. <laughs> and how will be the service of that vulnerability? Well, the disciple is being raw and open-hearted, and the disciple will, the guru, sorry, 
will feel that open heart with shelter, with clarity, with bisramba, with affection, with friendship, with intimacy. And is willing to do so as long as it takes. And as Krishna mentions in the Bhagavad Gita, at the very end, chapter 18, verse 72, he mentions that the Guru should be, when, when he's asking Arjuna, are your doubts clear? Like implying, do you need that I repeat the whole Bhagavad Gita? That's, that's his showing the role of the Guru. The, the disposition of the Guru should be, I'm prepared to explain the spiritual reality to my disciple until he or she has understood, no matter how many times I have to do so. That's his her mercy. Even if this involves, again, repeating instru instruction again and again. <laughs> and therefore, the, the duty of the disciple, he has the right and the duty to expose himself hmm, with his doubts and reasonable needs to the Guru. That's a vulnerability also. I'm showing myself with my unknowing, with my doubts, with my necessities. If I'm sincere, the Guru has to honor that. The Guru has the duty to nourish that and to guide that. The disciple with all his doubts, with all his rawness, so to say. <laughs> this is the role of a spiritual guardian, a Bhaktarakshak, so to say, <clears throat> in relation to to those he's gardening, so in one way or another. So the guru should ideally be able to recognize what stage, what state the disciples are operating from at that particular moment. And from there, the idea is that the guru will reflect back to the disciples an understanding of that, of where they are, and also help them to relate in a healthy way to that unfolding and movement that is happening inside of the disciples. So gradually taking in some way by the hand the disciples to get their own experience, to get their own realization, to reach their own conclusions. And in one sense, we can say that the spiritual mentor or director, that's another way we could also relate to the idea of guru, a spiritual director is directing, accompanying the disciple, and not only, again, telling what to do or how, what to think, but someone who is listening with his students what Krishna is asking you to do in this particular moment. Let's hear, let's pay close attention together. Again, the Guru is not someone who tells them what to do. But let's hear what he is saying together. Okay, and Guru is teaching the disciple to hear. This sometimes, this, this type, this method is called, known as a heuristics, which refers to allowing and enable someone to learn and discover something for themselves guide them in such a way that they have their own epiphany, so to say. Similar to Socrates, Maiotic. No? He will ask and reply questions in such a way that the other person will reach their con the proper conclusions by themselves. Mm -hmm. Exposition, invitation, inspiration. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, can take many shapes. Mm -hmm. But the point is that the disciple and the Guru's role is not to over-invade the disciple's life, nor to allow the disciple's situation invade his own life in one sense. What do I mean by that? The Guru should not make his disciples' problems his, so to say. Mm -hmm. the ideal, the, ideally, the Guru should hear the disciple, accompany the disciple, nourish the disciple, but at the same time, like a psychologist who is hearing someone but is not allowing the other person's life to fully merge with one's own life. So there has to be a, a healthy distance but that distance will allow the guru to perform his function properly, like he's a therapist, again. And the guru is kind of a divine therapist, so to say. <laughs> so it's important to, to not over 
take the situations of other people, but invite the other people, the disciples, to grow and to do their own thing. I cannot just think and feel and do for my disciples, so to say. Mm -hmm. So that's the ideal duty of the guru. And of course, the ideal duty of the disciple is then to be vulnerable uh, in front of such a person, mm -hmm. which means to be surrendered, to be humble, to be open, mm -hmm. to be sincere, to be raw. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, but again, the duty and qualification of the guru is to know what to do with such vulnerability. Mm -hmm. You have to have an adhikar as guru to know how to handle, how to deal with vulnerability, the disciples' vulnerability, because vulnerability is a portal to potential empowerment, as we already talked about. But also, if vulnerability is abused or mistreated, mm -hmm it can lend itself to trauma and exploitation of many ways, many sorts. Mm -hmm. So even if someone is acting as a guru and it doesn't have the intention to abuse or exploit, if you don't know what to do with your disciples' vulnerability, that can create terrible consequences. Mm -hmm. There are many cases of that. Mm -hmm. I know a good number of them in which gurus are just trampling on the disciples' vulnerability mm -hmm. instead of nourishing venerating, honoring that, and in many cases in that context even showing clear symptoms of sociopathy and things like this when you have no regard for, you cannot empathize with the experience and the feelings and the needs of the other person. So as we already talked in previous classes, the guru not only needs to have adhikar in terms of bhakti and knowing the shastra and so on, but also adhikar in terms of human interaction and relationships. And indeed, interestingly, in these cases where, where someone acting as guru is trampling, walking over one's vulnerability, I've noticed that most of those cases, those who abuse the disciples' vulnerability, even without wanting to do so, even without knowing that's going on, most of them are people who, has, who have not allowed themselves to have close relationships and deep relationships, deep, committed, intimate situations when one is really exposed to other. That's why ideally a guru or sannyasis, so to say, people who sometimes are more on their own, <laughs> they need to have friends and they need to have peers and intimate connections so they can have that rapport and feedback and, and remain connected and empathic, properly empathic. Because if you don't do so, again, if you don't have those type of connections, that won't allow you to appreciate in many ways, many cases, to value, to honor a quality like vulnerability. You may not value that, basically. And, and that can that's an abuse of power. If I'm a guru and I have a disciple who is vulnerable and I don't value that vulnerability, that's a form of abuse of power. And that's something very delicate. Again, it's a big commitment, as you can see. Big commitment what to do with others' vulnerability. Mm. And it doesn't apply only to guru-disciple relationship, to any situation where vulnerability is expressed in a sincere way. Mm. In other words, if a guru, we could say, if a guru doesn't know, does not know how to deal with the student's vulnerability, then he or she probably should not be serving as guru. Because that can create terrible results. Mm -hmm. And of course, if the disciple is not vulnerable, then the guru cannot be guru. The role of the disciple is to be vulnerable. If the disciple is not doing that, the guru cannot be guru. He's not able to serve in that capacity because he's depending on the disciple doing his part as well. But again, if the disciple is vulnerable and the guru doesn't know what to do with that vulnerability, probably that guru then shouldn't be guru actually. Mm. So 
in some cases in this connection, I've heard things like the onus on the responsibilities on the disciple, you know, in the relationship, guru-disciple relationship. But it's not the case. As we already mentioned, it's not that in the guru-disciple relationship, all the baggage goes on the shoulders of the disciple. That can lend itself to an ending abuse and trauma. Mm-hmm. Like with any relationship, guru-sisya, guru-disciple relationship, is something reciprocal also. Mm-hmm. In fact, probably guru-disciple relationship for most will be the most our most important relationship. So if every relationship is reciprocal, as it is, you, do, you cannot speak about a non-reciprocal relationship. That's not a, it's an oxymoron. That's not a relationship. So if every relationship is reciprocal, and the guru-disciple relationship is probably the most important, then that's the most reciprocal. Mm-hmm. There is no reciprocity, there is no relationship. Mm-hmm. There will be only monologue, but not dialogue. Mm-hmm. And that's something that resembles more and more dangerously to a dictatorship. When there is no mutual participation, there is only someone telling people what to do, what to think, and everyone else submitting to that. Only imposition, no exposition. Not only exposition of knowledge, but we have to expose our hearts to each other, <laughs> not impose our minds or separate interests. So again, Vishram Bena Guru Seva, that's ideal. Going back for a minute there, Vishram Bena Guru Seva speaks about a loving back and forth from both sides. Guru, disciple, disciple, guru. It's 50% of 50%, as we say many times. Both of them have to do their part. It's a joint project, mutual collaboration. Both need each other to be who they are, to be guru, to be disciple. And both need each other to do what they are expected to do, to be vulnerable and to honor that vulnerability. The guru has to honor the vulnerabilities, the disciple's vulnerability, but also the guru in his own way has to also learn to be vulnerable (laughs) in his own way. So the duty of a genuine guru as we already mentioned, but I will pound the post a little bit with, with or without your permission. The duty, the duty of a genuine guru will be to acknowledge, to honor, and to nourish, nourish the vulnerability of the disciple, to fill that open heart with shelter, with clarity, with abundant affection. But also the guru has to himself learn from such a process. It's not that I'm just giving and filling others' heart. It's mutual again, not only not only both guru and disciple will be learning from one another, as we already mentioned, but we could say, if the guru is more advanced than his disciple, as he should, she should, then by the strength of that greater advancement, the guru will be learning more from the disciple than the disciple from his guru. The more advanced you are, the greater capacity you have to learn from everyone, including your disciples. And a disciple may, have, may not have that greater capacity, so we'll be learning from the Guru, but the Guru will have a greater capacity to learn from everyone, including the disciples. Mm-hmm. So as we already mentioned, and, and, and that exposition of vulnerability is a big teachable moment for both. So we already mentioned proper vulnerability opened the, doors, the door for deep empowerment. Mm-hmm. And that's ideal. This pattern won't be an exception in their guru-disciple relationship. If the disciple is vulnerable properly and the guru honors that, the disciple will be empowered by the guru. But the same happens in the other direction. If the guru learns to be properly vulnerable, he will be, she will be empowered. Both will be vulnerably open to each other and both will be empowered 
by each other in corresponding forms, by divine arrangement. That's the magic of the Guru-Sisya connection. Now, the two of them are vulnerable and are empowered by each other, each from the respective posts, so to say, or, or situations or in their relationship, but that's the divine arrangement. That's what should be happening in the ideal template. Therefore, both share equal responsibility, we could say in this sense, but also, as we mentioned in previous classes, we could even say that in one sense there is more responsibility from the side of the Guru. Because again, the Guru is more advanced, is the father, some other things are expected from him or her that won't be expected from the child. The higher and more advanced you are, the more responsible you are expected to be in a relationship. And the more delicate will be the repercussions of each of the Guru's words, in this case, each of the Guru's thoughts and actions more than in relation to the disciple. Mm -hmm. That's why Shastra opens itself. You may have to reject the Guru, but that's not the case in the opposite direction. So in this sense, we could say that there is more responsibility on the Guru's shoulders mm -hmm. and not on the disciples. And, and, and in the sense that, again, ideally, the Guru has more capacity to take responsibility, like the father dealing with the baby's vulnerability. Mm -hmm. The baby, the other day, a baby came here and is so vulnerable so the father has big responsibility that you cannot expect the baby to take charge of the father's vulnerability, not at least in that moment of the relationship. So, of course, in another sense, both parties, guru-disciples, should be giving their 100% to the, to the situation, to the relationship, invested the whole being in that sacred relationship. But again, we could also say that the guru, being more advanced ideally, has more capacity to give himself and to take responsibility than the disciple. So in that sense, we are saying he should take more responsibility. But in another sense, again, both parts should be given their 100%, whatever that means at that particular stage for each of them. And in that sense, we see, do say the relationship 50% of 50%, not because each one has to give their 50%, each one has to give their 108% equally, and that will be 50-50. But again, that never has to do with the main responsibility lies on the disciple. Some of these misunderstandings in this connection. So, some words in connection to this notion of uh, the duty of the disciple being vulnerable and the duty of the guru honoring, venerating that vulnerability and being both vulnerable to each other and empowering each other. Let's, let's go now to the next section, which will be basically the last one, but we will take a good amount of time because this is the main point of today's class. Let's speak about codependency is not synonym with surrender, which is basically the main topic of today's class. It's not the same to speak about codependency than to speak about surrender. So what, as we already mentioned, the relationship between guru and disciple will include trust, affection, confidence, surrender from both sides each in its own way. So that's it. Some of these terms, surrender, humility, submission, sometimes can be misunderstood, as we already talked, and can be even exploited. We, we have these one-liners in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which are beautiful. I'm not criticizing them. Like surrender to the guru, be humble. Not like forcing someone to do that, but we are expected to. But the point is, what does it mean? What does it mean, for example, surrender to the guru? means to be codependent? Hopefully not. Does it mean to be someone who has no brain, no thinking capacity, no autonomy, no freedom? Hopefully not. So then the question is, 
So what's the difference between surrender and all the things that hopefully are not what we understand as surrender? What's the difference between, in other words, between surrender and codependency? So let's enter that topic now. So in codependency, what's codependency to begin with? Codependency, you give yourself to someone else, but only with the intention that such person will feel a void that you need them to fill. So basically, externally, you give to the person, you surrender, but internally, you are actually exploiting the person. You are using the person to fill your existential hole, so to say. And many times this includes the idea of, I need you to need me, codependent. A deviated guru also can fall prey of this. I need people needing me. But also a disciple can also toxically be codependent of the guru. We'll see later today some examples of how these dynamics play out from both sides. And how both of them can be feeding each other in that codependency, which is of course not the ideal template we have just described. <clears throat> so the relationship between spiritual teacher and student hmm, can easily fall in codependency uh, or, or, or can easily fall in other issues related like unacknowledged parent-child transference issues hmm, whether from the side of the disciple or from the guru or even cultism we'll talk about more next class about that one so we need to cultivate an awareness hmm, of, poten of the potentially damaging dynamics uh, in this relationship that's crucial even if, if we are situated in the best of settings, we should remain aware of the negative potential if we remain, if we stop being aware of, if we stop taking care of the things we have to take care of. So to begin with in this connection, an important clarification that even if surrender is expressed in itself in relation to the best of settings, we should understand that surrender, full surrender, that sometimes is expressed, you should surrender fully. Full surrender is not a one-act performance. It's not that you do something and now you are fully surrendered. Yesterday you were not surrendered and you are fully surrendered. <laughs> and what to speak, this genuine guru will never expect full surrender immediately from, from anyone. Because he knows that's a process. Full surrender is a very special stage or circumstance. And it's a gradual process. Surrender will grow naturally based upon faith, actually. Because, as we mentioned, Jiva Goswami mentioned Saranagati, or surrender, is the outer expression of Shraddha, or faith. Mm. So if surrender is an outer expression of faith, and we know that faith develops gradually, so therefore its outer expression, Saranagati, will also develop gradually, a gradual process. In other words, full surrender cannot be just attained, pressing a button and being there. Gradually developed and gently encouraged through loving dealings, through proper training, through practical advice, not by forcing it, like pressing a button and we are there. Surrender is, again, voluntary. It's not forced. Like you have a white flag, waving a, waving a, black, a white flag because someone is about to kill you. I surrender. That's not the surrender Gaudiya Vaishnavas talked about. So, of course, also in relation to surrender, it's something that I like to mention in this connection. When, what we have, when we have said previously in previous classes, for example, surrender to a guru proportionate to how much that guru is representing Krishna, we, are, we were suggesting this, just the idea that we have just shared, because some of us have asked me about that. I will, I'm like implying, I, a disciple needs to surrender fully to someone. So if, if a guru is not 
I don't know, fully representing Krishna, how can I calculate and not give myself fully? So when I say a guru fully representing Krishna, what do we mean? Because some may think, okay, if he's not a Uttam Bhagavad, then he's not fully representing Krishna. But I'm not saying that. A guru may not be a Uttam Mahabhagavad, maybe a Madhyam Adhikari, let's say, Madhyam Bhagavad. Uh, but in that level, that guru may be fully surrendered according to his present situation and capacity. What's full surrender for the Madhyam Bhagavad? And that person is doing that. The full surrender is not just only something that only an Uttam Mahabhagavad has attained and everyone else below are not fully surrendered. But it's most a disposition to fully give yourself in any given level. You can be fully surrendered in day, in day one if you're fully sincere and willing to do that. Although the way it expresses itself, it needs further refinement. But according to what you can do and offer at that moment, you may be fully surrendered. So in that case, if a guru is not the topmost Uttam Mahabhagavat, but is fully surrendered as a Madhyam Bhagavat, one can also, as a disciple, fully surrender to that person. Hmm? Because if both have fully surrendered, Krishna's will will manifest accordingly. And, but the full surrender will be, again, according to what does, what does it mean in our particular stage, as guru, as disciple. Hmm? Some uh, related idea to this notion of full surrender could be the term obedience. Hmm? And again, also in the context of potential codependency. So what's obedience? Again, for, for obedience... For there to be voluntary obedience, it cannot, it shouldn't be forced. There has to be first trust mm-hmm. and affection, and, and there will be obedience as a byproduct of that trust and affection, not the, the other way around. And our obedience will be sustained by original trust, again, which came by seeing the example of the person that I'm obedient to. But the point is, if the guru stops behaving as a guru should, the Guru cannot expect obedience from his disciples, much less demand obedience from his disciples, if he's not setting the proper precedent. Mm-hmm. Because why? Because for the disciple, the cause of his obedience was the example that the Guru was giving. So if the Guru is not giving an example, the source of inspiration for that obedience becomes affected. Mm-hmm. And if we as disciples nonetheless force ourselves to be remain obedient, that type of obedience will fall in the category of Niyama Graha, according to Rupa Goswami, which means following one of the, ver- the, the ways of translating that is following without the proper reasons for following. Not only following without knowing what I'm doing, what I'm doing, but doing with the wrong reasons for doing what I'm doing, which has in one sense even worse. An obedience without spirit. Another form of Niyamagraha is, as you may know, to reject all obedience, all following any rules in a whimsical way, anarchic way, so to say, without any good reason. But the version we are mostly pointing to here is to accept everything hmm, without good reasons, to be obedient, surrender, but without the proper reasons, to be obedient without knowing why I should be obedient, or again, remaining obedient due to the wrong hmm reasons to remain obedient, which is even worse. Knowing that, for example, there is something wrong going on with my guru, whomever I'm being obedient to, there is something wrong there, but nonetheless I force myself to remain obedient. That's not a desirable scenario. And Srila Rupa Goswami, he says, such niyama graha, such a blind following or obedience, what happens to that, that will destroy your bhakti, basically. Such behavior 
will affect your bhakti negatively. So that's a delicate thing we have to consider. In fact, the actual sin, so to say, niyamagraha, it's not so much to do, reject the rules, nor to follow the rules, but the actual sin is not having the proper intentionality, in this case, sustaining my obedience, or my non-obedience, depending on the case. In some cases I have to obey, in some cases I have to reject. Or in some cases I do both of them without the proper intention. So in other words, the, the, if I have the proper intention, if the heart and the conception is in the right place, proper understanding, proper intention, intention is there, I can be expressing obedience or even disobedience, as we already talked in previous classes, you can disobey Guru and Guru Seva in some cases, of course. In both cases, if I'm doing that from the right place, in both cases that will be favorable to my bhakti. But if I don't have proper intentionality and understanding, in those I can obey or disobey and it will be unfavorable for my bhakti. So one may question, rightfully question, why we as disciples sometimes express unhealthy obedience in relation to the Guru? What makes a person a human being, a human sadhaka? To know in this stuff, nonetheless, express an unhealthy disobedience. So let's share one possibility. Of course, there's not only one reason because why this happens, but one of them may be we may have two needs in our false ego, which one is to feel different, from others and to feel special in many cases. So we may try to obtain that in relation to the Guru. I want to feel close, special, intimate, different. And you may try to obtain that to, in relation to the Guru. And even if the price is to express healthy, unhealthy, sorry, obedience, and that will be codependency. Again, you are using the other person to feed whatever lacking you have. You are not actually serving. Or sometimes we can speak of all of this in terms of social dynamics, tribe narratives. Now, for example, in brain science, on the brain science level, we could say that we humans are wired, so to say, by our brains to be social creatures, herd animals, if you will. So we may think of ourselves as independent individuals, but our brains are hardwired for herd belonging. <laughs> you can see that. So this wiring keeps us vigilant for any sign of social rejection, of disapproval from members of our herd, of our tribe, especially its leaders. So this applies to our relationship with the Guru. This sometimes takes the form of unhealthy submission and obedience, just to fit in, just to not be rejected by my tribe, by my group, by my leader. Just we, we submit ourselves to anything in some cases, just to fit in, but we already talked in previous lectures, this is not about fitting in, but belonging, deep belonging, and developing proper criteria. Trila Prabhupada will say famously, I want that my disciples become independently thoughtful people. That's, that may create some vertigo in some, <laughs> but that's the quality of surrender that we want to attain, the quality of obedience we want to attain, a voluntary, informed, properly informed choice. Of course, that may not be there on day one. It's totally understandable. From day one, our surrender, obedience, whatever, may be more imitational. Sincere, but imitational, childish, so to say. So there may be still lots of spiritual bypassing we may not be aware of. But the point is that the, the, the way the relationship between guru and disciple should evolve is a different thing 
of the initial template in day one, at least from the side of the disciple. So the disciple, the immature neophyte disciple may be codependent from day one, but ideally the guru should not be a codependent person from day one. The guru <coughs> should, should not be a neophyte himself, herself, and should have present, that present in mind. My disciples may be codependent and I need to know as a guru how to deal with my disciples' codependency. Because if I do not do that, I become myself, I myself become codependent. So again, in the beginning, it's something different from the ideal evolution of the relationship. In the beginning, the guru may not need to be encouraging the novice, the neophyte disciple, to be independently thoughtful. It may be too much for them. But the relationship will be such that the disciple will be guided and informed by the guru in such a way that the disciple will conclude that by himself, by herself when the time has come, about the necessity for that. So by the way the interactions between guru and disciple will occur, by the way the guru will reciprocate, then naturally that independence will be fostered in the context of dependence. It's not that one goes against the other. So the guru is guiding his students to gradually reach a place of independence so that they have an autonomy, their own criterion, their own critical thinking, they learn how to think. It's not that the guru is there to tell them what to think. Again, in day one, that may be the case. Do this, think that, but eventually hmm, find the answer for yourself. Hmm. So for some people in the beginning, <clears throat> it is difficult to imagine being independently thoughtful. And again, it's understandable. It's like asking a baby to to write a book or to think for himself or to be independent. It's dangerous to leave a, bo a baby being independent. And, and for a disciple that can happen also. In the beginning a disciple will feel, if I become independent my guru be becomes less important and, and he won't be the, the all in all for me anymore. Which of course is not the case, but they will experience that as such. So in those cases the ideal of all in all for the neophyte disciple is, will be still probably in codependent terms. Hmm? And the disciple will be mostly thinking, I'm stupid, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, Gurudeva tells me everything and I surrender. That's kind of the easygoing formula. Which, again, may, may be, there may be a place for that in the beginning. <laughs> but that's still a very childish idea, a very codependent notion. Which is not from what, what the Guru should expect from the disciple, at least not forever. Maybe in the beginning that may be there, but... He should, the Guru have, should have in mind how the relationship should unfold. The disciples comes, come with their own immaturity. <coughs> and it's okay. As disciples, we may be babies in the beginning. But the Guru should be an elder, not a baby. So the Guru has to keep that in mind. I'm receiving babies, but I'm supposed to be an elder. And I cannot force that. I cannot fake elderness. <laughs> So the Guru has to keep that in mind and has to have the capacity to take the students in a way that, again, the disciple isn't apprehensive about the Guru's guidance. <clears throat> there is trust, there is affection, but the Guru has to be expert. Again, not there to, the Guru hasn't been just there to confirm the childish stuff in the disciple and affirm whatever the baby is demanding and expecting. On some level that will happen, but on some level the Guru will be gradually taking them from babyhood to childhood to teenagehood, to adulthood, to elderhood. Especially when the, the Guru should not feed 
the childhood in a baby, especially when the baby is no longer a baby and the baby is expected to behave as an adult. Hmm? So the Guru has to guide the disciple. Again, like a father or the mother, we already gave the example. You have to educate as a parent, you have to educate your children so they can have a life of their own, so they can be independent. Otherwise, we have some Oedipus complex, hmm? or the mother keeps the child at home to satisfy her needs, hmm? and you remain with me, you won't need anything ever, I will provide for you always, but you just keep next to me always. Hmm? So that's not healthy. Hmm? And the same will happen with the guru who is keeping the disciples uh, on a codependent level, not independent level. Hmm? So they depend on him excessively in order to have someone to to guide, to control, to play out the savior, his own savior fantasies in some cases, which of course a guru should not expect that, but that can happen. <laughs> so again, the father and the mother are still parents always in relation to the child, but the dynamics with their son or daughter have changed when they have grown. And the kids can love the parents, can appreciate their parents even more when the parents are not fulfilling their childish needs anymore, but by fostering proper independence. They, will, they may protest a little bit at one point, but eventually they will be, oh, thank you so much for kicking me out from the comfort zone, so to say. So the same has to happen with the guru and the disciple. In a very expert way, gradually the, the baby has to be put out of the comfort zone, be nourished, guided, so it eventually becomes independently thoughtful, not codependent. No, in that gurus, we could say a guru has the responsibility not to not promote codependency. Hmm? Promoting codependency is not the dharma of a guru. <laughs> because if a guru promotes codependency, then the guru becomes codependent himself, herself, hmm? and, 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 and becomes addicted to having people validating a certain idea of himself and who they are as gurus or how they will like to to think of themselves, hmm? a self-image that the guru may create or may make others have on in relation to him or her. And, and typically in these cases, the disciples sometimes also want someone to validate them. Hmm? So it becomes mutual. It's a vicious circle. This creates a pattern where both parties are avoid dealing with their own personal staff. Hmm? The guru has someone wanting someone to validate him, and the disciples want someone validating them. So it becomes a quote-unquote perfect combination. And it's subtle, very subtle, subtle sometimes. The baby disciple may come to the guru again with lots of expectation, over-expectation of the guru, that the guru may validate him in a codependent pattern, again, without bad intention, just the immaturity of the stage. But externally, all that expectation of my Gurudev validating me in the codependency externally will play itself out as surrender. Hmm. So, so although it may seem that through such surrender I'm giving everything to my Guru, we will be actually exploiting that person. Hmm. Why? Because again, we have just figured out how we want to relate, but we are not really willing to transform in that relationship. So that will be a form of exploitation disguised as a form of surrender. Hmm which again may be unconscious, but it's nonetheless a form of exploitation on some level. And this will be a using of the external form to avoid the substance. We resort to that on many occasions. It's not so easy to be free from that. You may be using the, form, the external form of humility, the facade of it, not to be humble. 
You may be using the form of surrender not to surrender. You may be using the form of compassion not to be compassionate and so on. And all of that will be a form of spiritual bypassing. Using the form, the facade of spiritual life to exactly avoid spiritual life. We'll talk more about spiritual bypassing next class. So hopefully the guru is beyond that. <laughs> the disciple may not be beyond that, but the guru has to be beyond that and can detect those things in the disciple. And again, most of the disciples, most of us have some of that. It's not you have it or you don't have it. There are degrees of that. So the guru can detect that, should detect that, and can help the disciple to go through that, through those layers, and arrive eventually at the place where the disciple can look back and realize, oh my gosh, I have such a bypassy idea of surrender or humility. But I'm fortunate to have awakened from that dream. And again, this bypassing of the neophyte, the, the using, the, using this, the form, the external form, to avoid the substance, may not be done even consciously. It's totally unconscious, not with bad intention. We are not here stigmatizing, demonizing, demonizing anyone, just trying to promote, uh, trying to normalize these things in the sense of we can talk about that and we can accept that these things can happen. We have to allow that to happen so we can deal with that because if not, it all remains in the realm of taboo. And it still is there more operative than ever. <laughs> So this can happen in an unconscious level from the disciple, but the guru has to see what's in the disciple's unconscious. The disciple may be unconscious of his own unconscious, but the duty of the guru, we could say, is to be conscious of the disciple's unconscious. The guru needs to detect the underlying background of what the disciple is doing without realizing that. And the guru has to realize, oh, he's sincerely trying to surrender nice boys, nice girl, <laughs> but the main background is still one of codependence. So this guy is innocently employing the facade of humility to actually avoid being humble without knowing that. So let's try to help him, help him to gradually realize that without becoming too terrified. <laughs> because if the guru is not having the capacity of see that and act in that way, one can end up abusing all the formal aspects of bhakti and using them not to connect with the substantial side. We can take the external form, exploit that, and abuse, abuse, uh, avoid sorry, the, the inner essence. Mm. Mm. Indeed, we can even use resort to prayer as a way of spiritual bypassing or codependency, like, Jai Gurudev, please take away my anarthas, which actually externally says, is said like that, but internally means alleviate my suffering. Mm. Don't make me do the things that make me transform and change my behavior that will stop my suffering, but just alleviate my suffering without me having to change. Please, Gurudev, give me mercy. Sometimes we, we will express like that. Surrender to your Guru and he will give you your mercy. But the implication will be, so I stop suffering without having to change. That's a form of codependency. Again, I surrender to you, but only so you can fill my void. So only, I'm using you to fill my void. I'm suffering, stop my suffering. With that stop, thank you so much. I'm not willing to develop and change and advance. That's exploitation and codependency. So you are, in those cases, we are not offering ourselves <laughs> to the Guru selflessly, out of vulnerability, out of real humility, but with considerable calculation. <laughs> so in the beginning, we may need a Guru to be able to see all those things for us. 
But in time, in time we should be as disciples also be able to develop the capacity to detect those things in ourselves. Otherwise, we may fall into another form of codependency, which basically is depending on someone else to tell us all the things always. And we are not doing anything to see those things for ourselves, to grow. That's a form of complacency, of mediocrity. Like Gurudev, tell me what I'm doing bypassing, what I'm doing spiritual bypassing Gurudev. No, no, it's not like that. No. We have to learn to look those things ourselves, to look at our own situation. And of course, it's good to have feedback from Guru and other devotees and peers, but one shouldn't replace the other. We should just develop our own capacity to see things. So in time, the Guru should be encouraging gradually this internal inner work, shadow work, as we mentioned in some of the first classes. But for this to be effective, the Guru should be also doing the shadow work himself, herself first. However, if our guides are not sufficiently familiar with this inner territorial landscape, they haven't done their own shadow work at, to a sufficient depth, they may not be going to be at home hmm, with what their students are doing or needing to do. Because they may even, in some of these cases, they will even cut off or, or marginalize this shadow work, this anarthenibriti, this introspection, this pulling out the weeds, of Mahaprabhu have said. You have put water on the bhakti creeper, but if you don't pull up the weeds, you are putting water on the weeds. You are fostering your anarthas while practicing bhakti. So you may be ending up using bhakti, the watering, to make your anarthas grow if you are not specifically intentionally working on that shadow work. Another way of speaking about anarthanibriti. So those gurus who are not willing to do that, sometimes even marginalize such inner work. Why? Because it's triggering in themselves something this may re unresolved in them. To speak about that and realize I'm not doing my homework is triggering something that is still unresolved. So they dismiss the whole thing, even for his disciples, hmm? without taking any responsibility for such cutting off that thing from his disciples. Indeed, rather than suggesting that those who may need should engage in disciplines like psychotherapy or something else to also heal certain aspects of our subtle body, Many times these teachers typically recommend, no, no, don't need to do that, no need to go that, just chant more rounds, further spiritual practice, which shows how much they themselves are trying not to deal with their own issues in some ways when that's required. Mm -hmm. So as we mentioned also, if the fault is assigned for the student's lack of success, sex, on this path, if a student is failing and only the disciple is always the one wrong, and no fault is attributed to the guru, that lends itself to a very toxic and undesirable scenario. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> a guru system, so to say, will have to collapse if it's built on codependency. Because why? Because any, any codependent relationship is destined to collapse. Try to understand that, going beyond even this guru-disciple relationship. Codependency is not healthy. Mm -hmm. Thus, one should not be a guru, basically, <laughs> if one is susceptible to codependence. Because you, you are putting yourself in the midst of a situation where your own weakness will like devour you, basically. And, and, and you have to do your shadow work for that not to happen. Again, that's another adhikar that the Guru should have. Not only adhikar in bhakti, but adhikar in sincere inner work, which of course is connected with bhakti, but also psychological, emotional, human balance. 
if the guru is not staying vigilant in this connection, then over time the guru may fall into that trap of codependency. A guru initially may not buy into that, maybe starting very honestly and sincerely, but sometimes it can happen, some cracks start to come if we are not aware of that, because it's a comfort zone. Codependency is a form of complacency, it's a comfort zone, it's an easy temptation, a cheap one, and the guru becomes important to the disciples, and that makes the guru, in, that, in some case, again, I'm not generalizing, that may make the guru feel Oh, I'm, I'm special to them. I'm better than others even. And all this may be a shelter, quote-unquote, a false one, from whatever pain or unresolved trauma even the Guru may be experiencing, an escape from whatever shadow work may be waiting on the door. And again, this can be applicable to the disciple. It's not only all on the Guru. <laughs> But in this case, we are analyzing that particular perspective. And, and, and that, in that case, the situation will mask itself like, oh, I have to give myself to my disciples because they are so dependent on me and I have to reciprocate. They need me. But actually, the Guru is fostering and promoting that to keep the whole thing codependent. And it all be, may be a facade, again, in those cases. It presents as dedication and loving interaction, but internally, one is using the circumstance to avoid one's inner work. So, again, well, a disciple may be unaware of that from day one. In the beginning, the guru has to be aware of codependence, codependent patterns, templates, in the disciples and in himself, herself. And as a disciple, we need a guru because we need someone to be aware of those things that we may not be being aware of yet. <laughs> Ideally, a guru is an elder, as we mentioned. He has vision. He's someone who can guide us. It's not that we are a three-year-old and we are being guided by another three-year-old. That's a world like that. A baby guided by another baby. Where will that end? A blind person guiding another blind person. Of course, also some of these templates, as we mentioned, can happen in the disciple. You know? for, for example, from a disciple side, the disciple may surrender, quote-unquote, as a way not, of not being responsible for himself, not thinking for myself, not taking personal responsibility. And personal responsibility is something totally crucial. But sometimes the idea of surrender may hijack, so to say, sabotage that function if unproperly understood. I have to surrender. And we may consider that, oh, surrender means I will wait for my guru to validate every moment, every movement, everything I do. He will tell me what to do. I won't do anything if he doesn't tell me. I won't think anything if he doesn't tell me. And externally, it seems... Oh, I, I just want his blessings before I perform any act at every step. But actually, the, what's going on in those cases, you don't want to become responsible for your own acts. You don't want to take responsibility. And in, in case some, something happens to you, something wrong goes with, you, with, with what you did, it's, oh, I just did what my guru told me. It's not my fault. In other words, if I surrender to my guru, then my failure is no longer mine, but belongs to my authority. So it's his fault. Again, externally it shows I'm just waiting for my Gurudev's blessing before everything, every step I take. But internally, if something goes wrong, it's his fault, not mine. <laughs> I don't need to change ever. It's he the one who is at fault. So, of course, that's not very nice. <laughs> this reminds me of a pattern described by Fyodor Dostoevsky in his brother Karamazov, Brothers Karamazov. It's a famous section called the Grand Inquisitor, and that's a, there's a chapter of the book, and there, there's a character speaking with Jesus, 
I upload, I've shared some videos a month ago about that, this conversation, dramatization of that section. And the person is telling to Jesus, basically, people is afraid of freedom, afraid of personal responsibility. They desperately want authority figures to tell them what to do. So they don't have to hold themselves accountable for their own actions. That's what dictatorships are. A dictatorship, you have the dictator, okay, he's not a nice guy, but also you have a whole mass of people who don't want to think for themselves and take responsibility and who submit to the dictators. So a dictatorship in big part is facilitated by those masses of people who are not willing to take personal responsibility. So, and this same pattern can be seen in how obsessively some disciples treat their guru. Again, this may be done unconsciously, but at least the guru should not mistake their, that codependency with real surrender, ultimate mature surrender. Because if the guru mistakes this, then he may end up becoming codependent himself, herself, and partial to those disciples who, felt, who make him feel special, who especially are codependent of him. What to speak, if you have low, low self-esteem and you have, need people to be your cheerleaders, that's not healthy. Don't be a guru if you have low self-esteem, I can tell you. So, in fact, sometimes gurus have extreme other, other, other possible scenarios of these codependencies. Sometimes we have gurus who have extreme emotional dependency on some disciples, but they are not willing to admit that. They are really partial, they are really dependent, but they try to hide their own codependency in those cases by criticizing others' emotions as being mostly sentimental, downplaying emotional expression, downplaying emotional needs in general, and overemphasizing intellectual pursuits and attainments and other areas of focus. Let's speak in detail about the Lila, while probably the Guru himself in some cases is totally needy in emotional terms, is totally codependent and partial, but unwilling to acknowledge that and still camouflaging that by not only hiding that, by downplaying those things he himself needs in others. Mm. So those are less than ideal scenarios that we should address if they happen to be there. Let's share one example, last example of codependency and we are almost done. If a devotee or anyone, a disciple, whoever, don't trust themselves enough, and I'm not saying this in an egotistical, egocentric way. I'm perfect, I'm beautiful, I'm all in all. There is a trust we should develop in ourselves, an inner dignity in connection to who we are in relation to Krishna and who he is in relation to us. That's part of our balanced humanity, as we already spoke about. So if we don't trust ourselves in this way, then we will only be trusting others. We need others to trust in us because we don't know how to trust in ourselves. Within our only, only our guru to trust in us because we don't know how to trust in ourselves. But whenever that trust in others is affected, God forbid, but that can happen, then we will have no trust foundation whatsoever in ourselves. So that will be really, that can lead to even paranoia. So somehow this same pattern can extend and apply again to the guru. We will trust the guru. And we should trust the Guru if everything is in place, of course. But we shouldn't use or employ that trust as a replacement to the type of trust that we need to develop in relation to ourselves in a healthy way. Hmm? So one thing shouldn't replace the other. That's the point. If not, this can even be seen again externally as an extreme form of Guru Nishta, of full firm faith in the Guru, an extreme form of surrender. 
but in some cases, it may be only an evasive mechanism to not do the work of trusting ourselves in a healthy way, and we end up using the sadhu, so we don't have to actually do our part of trusting ourselves, and that will be a form of guru bhoga, of enjoyment of the guru, sadhu bhoga, exploitation of the guru, not guru seva. And again, the guru should be aware that probably many codependent people will approach him or her. And if he doesn't deal with them properly, he, he may end up being codependent person, or in other words, a narcissistic person, which of course is the perfect fit for a codependent one. Narcissistic, codependent. And again, externally, this scenario between a narcissistic and a codependent person may seem externally as a perfectly loving, ideal, reciprocal, but such reciprocity is basically only taking place in a way in which both parties are exploiting one another and are using each other as an evasive device to avoid facing their own shortcomings. That's not the role of the guru and that's not the role of the disciple. We already mentioned which is the ideal template between guru and disciple. Now we are showing that indirectly. What's that not? So again, going back to learning to trust ourselves in Bhagavan, in relation to him, will give us integrity, dignity, of course, humility, and only with those attributes we can actually become real disciples, actual disciples, or actual gurus, or better put, as we already mentioned, servants in both, ca both cases. So anyhow, some words regarding this idea of codependency versus healthy surrender. Let's share a few words of conclusion, as usual, wrapping up, and with this we conclude today. So, as we have already shared, there's in previous classes, there's lots of unresolved trauma that builds structure to future further trauma everywhere, including in our Gaudiya community. Not in the essence, in the Swarup of the Gaudiya Sampradaya, but in the dynamics and the members of the community. So our unresolved trauma, as we already mentioned, becomes trauma for others because we are transpassing them in our relationship with them. And those who follow our own unresolved trauma, although they may not have that same trauma themselves, they become implicated in that. And that can happen in the guru-disciple relationship. Not only on, on us as individuals, as disciples, but also in relation to a guru. If the guru, is not, if the guru is not equipped to deal with his own traumas, in case they have any trauma, of course, uh, or in case the guru is not able to deal with the disciples' own trauma, this trespassing of trauma in the name of parampara can happen. And if a codependent disciple is worshipping the guru for the wrong reasons, is worshipping the unresolved traumas that that guru may have, of course the disciple is not seeing those things as trauma, as unresolved trauma, but if the disciple is doing that without knowing, and the guru is not only allowing that to happen, but promoting that worship of his unresolved trauma, that becomes part of the disciple's future trauma. <laughs> and that's not parampara again. We are not passing divine transference and knowledge, something else we are passing. So in those cases, the disciples may have no clue what's actually going on. They're, they are maybe thinking we are fully surrendering to Gurudev and we are getting closer and closer to Krishna, but they may be acquiring trauma by worshipping something that is not worthy being worshipped and is not resolving the Guru's figure who is not working on that. Again, I'm going to a very undesirable scenario, but a possible one. So in time, when that trauma becomes a problem for the disciple, 
The disciple acquired a trauma from the guru, and the trauma becomes a problem for the disciple. The disciple, they don't kind of recognize where this trauma came from, because they never knew that was a trauma. They worshiped even that from in the guru. Hmm? Um, that probably is perpetrating further trauma. Hmm? So the point is, in those cases, one keeps passing on trauma. But as we already said in previous classes, uh, parampara is something else. It's to pass on something else, not trauma. Hmm? We may have some unresolved issues, both as gurus as, and, and as disciples, uh, issues that are, may not be obvious for everyone, or even not obvious even for us, but, but sometimes also there will be some scenarios that will trigger our unresolved issues in our unconscious. So we should pay close attention to those moments, both as gurus and as disciples. These situations, moments of trigger, these tests, Will, will surely come. And we should be continuously re ready to distinguish them, the things, and distinguish between the difference between codependency and healthy surrender. That's an ongoing process that happens in so many different layers. And we should be open, again, both, both as gurus and disciples, to remain working on that so our ideal guru-disciple relationship flourishes and blossoms into the ideal template we described today as well. So anyhow, some thoughts on this particular topic. We'll conclude here and share a brief homework for those who will like for this week. So try to reflect, let's try to reflect on patterns uh, of thought that we may have and which may promote unhealthy codependency. Let's try to be introspective about that and let's think what we can do to improve them in ourselves or if we have perceived them in our local community or other relationships. So see you next uh, Tuesday for our last seventh and last lecture on Guru Tattva, where we will be talking about spiritual bypassing between Guru and Disciple. So we will continue with similar points that our today's class, but from new, further, nuanced perspectives. So that will be our last class on Guru Tattva, and then we will continue with some other series of lectures as part of the Radical Personalism series. Sri Guru Tattva Ki Jai, Sriman Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Shri Hari Nam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Shri Gaudi Sampradaya Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Priman Haribu Vancha Kalpatarubhya Shagripa Sindhukhya Ivacha, Patitanam Pavani Pivarishna Vibhyanamonama, Ananta Koti Vaishnava Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Haribu.